pastor who is with his family tonight. His dad is being ordained as an elder at his church in Newcastle. So um, you have me tonight. I am the substitute, which means that we're all going to do coloring sheets and watch movies. So (laughs) substitute teacher. All right. That's what I always tell people whenever I fill in for a Sunday school class or something like that. And so uh, tonight, though, no, tonight is actually going to be worse. We're going to be a lot more serious and spend at least the next hour and a half reading the word together line by line. I'm just kidding again. Isaiah chapter 6. If you will turn there, please. And as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 6, I want to invite you to take a moment and consider this. Take a moment. Remember, consider the most beautiful and breathtaking moment that you have ever experienced. Okay, take just a second, just a moment to think about that. The most beautiful and breathtaking moment you've ever experienced. Maybe it was a scene of nature. You know, maybe it was the grandeur of the Purple Mountain Majesty. Or maybe it was a sunset at Panama City Beach. Maybe it was your spouse as either she walked in down the aisle or maybe as he was standing there waiting for you at the altar. Maybe it was your children being born or maybe it was a work of art. Maybe there was something that you saw that someone created that just moved you. The most beautiful and breathtaking moment. Have you got that? Does anyone... Is it, If you've got that, let me just see your hand. I'd like to to make sure that you're with me tonight because I am the substitute. I want to make sure you're not just checking out, pretending like this is something you can forget on. So how did you respond in that moment? Think back to that moment. How did you respond? Did you just keep it inside and never tell anyone about it? Never share it with anyone? If so, maybe... Uh, that's not the case. I'm pretty sure the most breathtaking moment in our lives, isn't it something you share with someone else? You have to tell someone about You either take a picture of it. Nowadays, right, you take a picture with your phone and you can put it on the whole internet for the whole world to see. Look at what I just saw. I do that sometimes with scenes in nature. I like to share certain things. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of like sunsets and sunrises and those kind of like picturesque things. I, I'm a Bob Ross fan, so any kind of Bob Ross type of photo that I see, I'm like, that's great. I love that. Um, maybe, uh, you know, if it's something, sometimes th- this is personal, again, right from, right from me. If I eat something really, really good, like if it's like a really good meal, I like to take a picture of it and tell people about it because I love food. I love telling people about the food that I like to eat. So, um, you know, for many of us, though, we've taken a picture of our wedding and we show that, or maybe you've got a picture of your kids or your grandkids and you've shared that. Uh, maybe it's a sports team that you love and you went and saw them and you shared the whole. If you've got something that's really meaningful to you and maybe the most breathtaking moment in your life, you've told people about that. And I'm betting that no one had to teach you how to share about that. How to, no one had to train you and how to share what matters to you. And even when that moment comes to mind again, do you feel just the urge to tell someone about it? 
You're like, oh, this is, my, this is what really moved me. But when it comes to Jesus and his gospel, when it comes to sharing our faith, how many times do we have to hold an evangelism training? Or how many times do we have to have a revival or someone challenging us to share our faith? Why does it come so easy to share those things in life that matter to us? But when it comes to our faith, we struggle. For most, the answer to this question comes from a lack of time in the presence of God. Which leads to a lack of worship in our lives. The glory of God completely changes us and moves us to share with others what we have witnessed. Tonight I want to look at this in the example of the life of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6. I invited you to turn there. We're going to look at the first eight verses together. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. I want us to see tonight this truth, how the glory of God completely changes us and moves us to share with others what, what we have witnessed. We see it in the life of Isaiah. And I want us to see these three things from Isaiah's experience with the glory of God. The first thing is Isaiah experienced the glory of God when he was in the presence of God. Notice those first four verses. Isaiah and the people of Israel. Now specifically, Isaiah is with the southern kingdom. Many of us here tonight have heard that where we, where we know that Israel after Solomon divided. They divided 10 of the 12 tribes went to the north and formed Israel and two of the 12 tribes stayed in the south where Jerusalem was, and they formed the kingdom of Judah. And two of Solomon's, uh, after him, there was two different kingdoms, and eventually the northern kingdom was wiped out by the Assyrians, and they were scattered, and then eventually the kingdom of Judah was taken over by the Babylonians, and that's when the exile happened. Now, Isaiah is in Judah. He's, he's, with, he's in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and King Uzziah has died. And he's in the temple. We're not really sure. It's hard to infer exactly why Isaiah is there. If he's just 
doing his normal duties, or if he's there because Uzziah died, if that's just a time marker. There could be some correlation. We're not sure. But whatever the case is, I, he's in the temple. And that's when he sees the presence of God. Now we know that being in the temple is not uh, uncommon. In fact, there's a verse I want to show from Isaiah 29. This is the same book, but Isaiah 29, verse 13, says this. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is a verse, actually Jesus quotes this verse, describing the condition, the spiritual condition of the people of Israel of his time too. So people in Isaiah's time, they're used to worshiping God through ritual, but their hearts are far away. Isaiah may be in that same boat tonight, but he's still, he's in the temple. He's in a space where he's somewhere where God will speak to him and he will listen. He, he is somewhere where he can be in the presence of God. That's very important. While he's here, God surrounds him with his presence. We see that, right? We see that he says the, the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And he sees the real glory of God. He doesn't just see the rituals that they had gone through, that they go through day in and day out, but he sees the real glory of God. And he sees what real worship is like. He sees these angels who are worshiping the Lord. He sees now what they've been missing, what the people of Israel have been missing. Up until this point, he's never really seen God in this way. He's never seen God's, the worship of God. He's only known the commandments, the rituals of God. What we see here is we have to, as God's people, make it a priority. We must strive to be in God's presence. To go beyond just being at church or being, uh, doing the rituals of worship, the expressions of worship, but be in the presence of God, the real presence of God. What does that mean for us practically? It means that worship with the church body must be seen as vital. We've got, I mean, you're here tonight on a Sunday night, so this is kind of like, what, preaching to the choir, cliche but being in the presence of God with the church body is so vital. However, we must also see our personal time with God as essential and not extra. Many will make Sunday morning a priority to be here, but it stops there. To get into God's presence, we're in the presence of God here on Sunday morning, but also it carries on in our lives day in and day out. And it has to be essential, not extra. We miss God's presence because we fail to stop and take time to get in a place where the Holy Spirit can speak to us. You know, it's a lot like being married to someone, if you can imagine this, but all you ever do is fulfill the external requirements of marriage. You know, you're married on paper, you're married in maybe function, but you never spend time with your spouse. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, that would be wonderful, okay? That's, that's, that's bad, okay? If you're thinking that, stop right there, okay? It's just, it's just an illustration. We're not talking about the truth. But it, it's like that, though. It's like being in a relationship with somebody, and you fulfill these requirements of being in that relationship, except you don't ever spend time in their presence. That would be very, very empty. That would be very surface level of a relationship, a marriage, whatever it might be, even a friendship. 
that would be so fake. And we would never have anything to really be impacted by. Nothing would move us in a relationship like that. You would never really know who that person is. And for many of us, that is how we treat our relationship with the Lord. We fulfill these requirements, but our hearts are far from him. We need to move to make being in the presence of God a high priority in our lives. The second thing I want us to see about this passage is that Isaiah understood real holiness and his own spiritual condition when he experienced the glory of God. Verses 5 through 7, we see this. He sees the presence of God and he witnesses the holiness, the real holiness of God. Again, going beyond the rituals, beyond the things that they did, he sees God's real glory. And in turn, he then realizes, Isaiah realizes his own sin. And not just his own sin, but the sin of all the people. He realizes how much that he and his people have missed the mark. He sees how lost they are apart from the Lord. And he's a spiritual leader in that nation, and he sees how how lost they are. God wants to send Isaiah out, but before he does that, he wants his heart to understand that it must be made right. He needs to know that he's not where he needs to be. He does this not only for Isaiah's sake, but he also does this so that he will understand forgiveness, understand this when he goes to take the message of God to the hearts of people who also need this. Isaiah experiences this forgiveness. He experiences the atonement of his sin when the angel comes and touches him with a coal on his lips. And he experiences the wholeness that comes from that, the real wholeness that comes from forgiveness, a real experience with God's glory. For many of us, we become comfortable with our spiritual condition, with our sin. We grow comfortable, we grow content, not really knowing our true condition. Right? We, we just get used to it. It's kind of like when you get used to your house and there's things in your house that need to be fixed. But you're just used to it. And you never get around to it until it's time to sell the house. And then all of a sudden, I got to fix all these things. And then your house is so great because you spend all this time and money fixing it and you don't get to enjoy it. Right? The next person does. The flooring has been so bad forever, but now we get to replace it. Because we just get used to it, and then we just live with it. That's what happens when we don't ever confront our sin, when we don't see our own spiritual condition, because sin hardens our hearts, it makes us complacent, and it keeps us from hearing the Holy Spirit and being led by Him. We see this with Jesus and the people that were around Him when He walked the earth. Even His own disciples missed it so many times that they miss what he was doing, what he was saying. I mean, he would even ask them, don't you understand what I'm saying? The Pharisees missed him. And this is what John the Baptist was trying to do, was to get people ready. Look at this, this, uh, these few verses from the, the Gospel of Mark. When Mark writes this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make 
his paths straight. And then notice this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What John the Baptist was trying to do was not just say that Jesus is coming. He was trying to prepare the hearts of people to see God moving because sin was clouding their hearts. Sin was hardened. It had hardened their hearts. Just like what Isaiah experiences, John was trying to bring that same repentance, that same forgiveness to the people so they would see Christ. And we today, because of our spiritual condition, miss what God is saying, what God is leading us to do, and we don't share the gospel because our hearts are hardened by our spiritual condition. Our takeaway from this is we must seek after the glory of God and examine the spiritual condition in our hearts. We have to do it. I already mentioned the example of your house, but also I have a, like, I have a white car. If you drive a white car, um, a lot of times I think, it's okay, it's not that dirty. It's not, you know, it's, it looks okay. But then I pull up and I park next to a white car that's been through the car wash and I think, it's not that clean. Or maybe you have a white shirt that's not that white anymore and you see someone with a really nice white shirt and you're like, it's not that white, is it? That's what Isaiah's experiencing. When, he sees the, when we see the holiness of God, when we're in the glory and the presence of God, God's glory shows us our real spiritual condition that we neglect, that we forget. The last thing I want us to see about this passage is that Isaiah could not keep silent when he experienced the glory of God. As God asks who will go and take the message to the people, Isaiah utters these words that are so powerful. He says, here am I, send me. Isaiah sees the glory of God because he's in God's presence. He experiences the forgiveness and repentance from his spiritual condition, from his sin, because he sees it in the glory of God. And now the glory of God, all of this has led him to not stay quiet. He can't. Everything that he has experienced with God's glory cannot be contained within him. He must go and share. He must go and serve the Lord. God's glory is too wonderful and powerful to contain. Isaiah's response represents the biblical meaning of worship. Uh, Worship, we've been hearing about worship from uh, Michael's sermons the past several weeks about a living sacrifice. But if we look at it from the biblical meanings of worship, we, we see that it's much more than just music or preaching or even the Sunday morning worship service. Worship is, is the response to the glory and authority of God. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament most often use the word shakah. You really got to get in the back of the throat to say shakah. You kind of choke on it a little bit. Shakah is a Hebrew word most often used to describe worship, and it's a reflexive verb. Now, I know I'm a substitute teacher, so using English words is not very, very uh, cool. I understand that. But what that means, it's very important. It's, it's a purposeful word. It means that, that I, 
I am responding, the one who is worshiping is responding by humbling himself or herself by lowering, bowing down in response to the one in authority, in response to the glory of God. That's what shakah means. Seeing the authority, seeing the glory, bowing down. In the New Testament, there's not just one word for worship, but the most common word is proskuneo. If you look in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, the disciples, when Jesus comes to them on the mountain, right before the Great Commission, it says the disciples worshiped him. That's proskuneo. And proskuneo has a very similar meaning. It means to bow down or bow low in response to someone's authority or even kissing the hand or kissing the ring of one in authority. In, in, in their day and age with, with uh, Romans and Roman soldiers and the different, different uh, ranks that Romans would have, if a, someone who outranked you met you on the road, you would, would kneel down and lower yourself below, physically lower yourself below them and either kiss their ring. And, and proscuneo, when we think of it in, in the, the biblical sense, even means maybe kissing the feet. You know, when the woman who brings the alabaster jar and breaks it and anoints Jesus' feet with it and she's wiping his feet with her tears and her hair, that, that embodies the meaning of proscuneo. And so worship, the biblical meaning of worship, is this response to God. It's what we do in response to him. And the way that we now express worship, that becomes more specific. So corporately, as a church body, when we all meet together, tonight it's this, but in the Sunday mornings it's all of this. When we meet together, we express our response to God through things like the preaching of the word, singing of songs, reading of scripture, sharing testimonies, when we give our offerings, when we observe baptism, when we shake hands. That's not, just a, that's not just a clever Baptist thing. Fellowship is an act of worship between one another. And then the Lord's Supper as well. Personally or individually, we express our response to God through worship much like we do corporately, but again, it's individual. We do it through prayer, Bible study, meditation, praise, testimony, service, personal acts of worship. Isaiah's response to God, that applies both corporately, the whole church can respond to God in worship and go out and share the message of, of Christ, or it can be individual as well, personal where we respond to God's glory and personally share the message of Christ with others. When we share about Christ with others, when we share Jesus with someone, we are worshiping him. And the opposite is also true. When we fail to share Jesus with others, we fail to give him worship. The worship that he deserves. This worship really takes place when we experience the glory of God. Just like I asked you to consider the moment 
the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, the thing that you can't help but share. It's because it's real for you. It's because it's something that you really experience that you have been with, something that's real in your life that makes a difference in who you are. And when that happens with us and God, we cannot help but keep it. Or excuse me, we cannot help but share it. We will not keep it silent. It's a real relationship. And that only comes through personally worshiping him through practices like prayer and Bible study and meditation, through corporate worship. It only comes through worship of God, spending time in the presence of God, encountering God's glory. We must see Christ and see sharing about him as our worship of him. Not as some mere obligation or duty that we have to fulfill something that we do out of response for feeling guilty because of a pastor or an evangelist or a training. We must see it as the worship, the response to who Jesus is, to who God really is. We share about him because he loves us, he changed us, and he's worth it. So tonight, I hope that we see that the glory of God completely changes us. And it moves us to share with others what we have witnessed. And our response to this is simply, how will you respond to God? What is your response to him? As you encounter his glory, as you see his truth through the word, what is your response? Maybe he's calling you to come get in his presence, to be with him. Maybe for so long, you have been great at going through the motions. You're at church every week. You serve. You give. But your heart is far from him. You're not spending time in his presence. Maybe you've been really great at pretending, too. Going through the motions, but you don't even have a real relationship with God. Also, Our response could be about the sin in our life. Maybe there's a sin that God is trying to convict you about. He's calling your attention to. And as you see his glory, you know that there's sin that you need to deal with with him. So tonight as we go, whatever the response might be, respond to God. Because he's worth it. We see his glory, respond to it. Just like Isaiah experienced the glory of God. He could not help but be changed by it and could not help but share about what he had saw. May that be the same with us. Let's pray.